1: I've shared with you before my experiences in India. I always I found it fascinating to go into a Hindu temple for the very first time. And there's much pomp and circumstance, and you're required to take your shoes off, and so on and so forth. And if you've never been in one, it's fascinating because a Hindu temple, at least the ones that we visited was not a single altar to one god, but in fact it is a an almost large courtyard like affair with multiple altars to multiple gods within the the deist system of hinduism there's thirty three million different gods, and it's amazing as you watch the priests that will do songs and incantations and writhe about on the floor and cover themselves in paint and in ashes and and go through all these machinations in an effort to try and reach out to God, or a God, to try to get that God's attention, to try to get that God's appeasement. And it really is heartbreaking from a Christian perspective to walk through there and see all of this, and you you can sense about you demonic presence all around, and the depravity of man, and it's heartbreaking because all of this effort that goes forward and try to reach up to God and somehow connect with Him and appease Him, and yet we know from the story of the Bible that in reality, God came down. In fact, God came down in such a fashion that he came down to get his hands dirty. We're joined now by Johnny Moore, who coincidentally is a pastor, advisor, professor of religion, and vice president of prestigious Liberty University, and author of a new book whose title initially was slightly off-putting to me. And then when I got into the book, I realized, wow, this really spells it out. His new book is called Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, newly published by our friends at Thomas Nelson. And uh, Johnny, great to have you on the program tonight.
2: Thanks. I'm really glad to be with you.
1: Your book is an interesting one because it paints a picture. You know, people sometimes talk about cheap grace and so forth. It, it, it paints a picture of the idea that in every respect, really and truly, God God came down, and as he did so, He 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 rolled up his sleeves and got his hands dirty, didn't he?
2: Yeah, he did, and and in so doing, Jesus busted through this concophony of praise from every religion in the world, every idea of God in all of human history that has been solely about man doing everything he can to get God's attention. And this Jesus, this dirty God, as i, as I called him in the book, decided that he was going to come down to planet Earth, and he was going to come after us, despite the fact that we had made this mess. He invited himself into the mess that we made he got dirty and he gave us the opportunity to become clean again so that's why I, I called the book dirty god i wanted to reflect on the on the real beauty and transcendence of the grace of jesus christ
1: in our fallen nature all of this is counterintuitive isn't it
2: you know it is it, it's you know not natural that that, that you know it, we we aren't to other people the way god is to us in jesus christ i mean uh, we we hold people accountable and we hold grudges And in in the face of justice, God is just, but what he is is he's also a God a God of grace. And so he wrote the story that has been the plot of every novel of any success and every movie that we watch, everything through all of history is the same plot, this plot of redemption over and over. It's grace, and grace is gotten, and grace is given, and Jesus is the picture of that. And I think it's time we resurrect the image of this of this idea of Jesus, the God who got dirty so the world could get clean.
1: You know, we oftentimes will hear the picture of, of grace as one that sort of paints God as being weak, that God is sort of Capitulating to mankind. Well, if you can't live and abide by my laws and within the rules and regulations that I set forth, you know, even from the beginning, it wasn't a very long list. There weren't ten commandments. There was just one. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we couldn't even manage one, let alone the ten that we were given through Moses. And so now the idea that God would say, okay, I'm going to come up with yet another plan, and it, it ultimately kind of, in the perspective of some suggesting that that it made god seem weak but yet in your new book dirty god you you wonderfully paint the picture that in fact uh the notion as we said before of god getting his hands dirty by coming down and taking on the form of mankind is anything but a sign of weakness
2: yeah you know the 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 easy thing to do would have been just to give us what we deserve i mean we were the ones that turned our, our back on god but what did he do i mean this is this is the god who made everything i mean the Bible tells us that Jesus is the heir of all things. He spoke the whole world into existence. I mean, we cannot begin to fathom the wealth and the influence and the power of God. I mean, we can't even get that in our head. And yet here's God, Jesus, being born in a manger, living his first night in a feeding trough. The, the press release is sent to shepherds. I mean, he doesn't even have a place to put his head. He grows up in a village of 400 people called, called Nazareth, and eventually, when he starts finally preaching this gospel that he's brought to the earth, what do they do to him? They run him out of his own village, his own friends and family. They run him out of his own village and try to throw him off of a cliff. I mean, this grace that God has given us through Jesus Christ, I mean, it, it took God's strength. Not, it's not a demonstration of weakness. It's a demonstration of a God that could suppress what we deserve in order to give us a second chance. that's what he's been doing all through history. You know, my my book, Dirty God, is really a book about the kindness of God, the kindness of God given to uh, to us as recipients of grace, and the kindness of God that we have the opportunity to give to others as distributors of it. And And
1: it is at at so many levels, so uncomprehensible, because I, I think we all have an idea about Things that uh, that presidents or, or, or kings do or don't do. I mean, for example, the, the president does not drive himself anywhere. He has a security detail and a chauffeur. The president doesn't go into the kitchen and uh, start pulling things out of the refrigerator and cook his own meals. He has a chef that does all of that. Uh, there are so many things that kings don't do. And yet all of a sudden we find this image of the king of kings. Coming down and doing things that we would never expect him to do.
2: Yeah, and the people he hung out with. I mean, mm. I think this is one of the most fascinating stories about, about Jesus, is that he chose these disciples. I mean, he he chose these people. And you look at their stories, you know, you, you, Peter, who's, who's, you know, who speaks before he thinks, and he's rough around the edges. You've got Doubting Thomas, who's, who's you know, clearly like a pessimist, you've got James and John, and, and you've got you're the Sons of Thunder, they called them, you've, you've got all of these different personality types, these people always making mistakes, Jesus gets tired of them eventually, and says, why are you being so dull? Why don't you just catch up, you know, with me? And, and I think that's part of the, the beauty of the story. I mean, Jesus came, and he could have come as, as a king, I mean, he could, have, he could have done it that way, he, he could have gone to Jerusalem or Rome. But instead, he goes to Bethlehem and Nazareth and Capernaum, and he doesn't pick the best and brightest. He picks people that are a lot like us, Mm. and and I think that's the amazing thing about all of this. I mean, he comes, Jesus arrives in a culture where Greco-Roman gods were known for their perfection in their temples. I mean, even their physical physiques were perfect. And Jesus arrives as a God that looks a little more like men, like everyday people, on the chance that people like the people listening right now will feel that God cares about them and he does that's the image of Jesus
1: a dirty God and what a what a poignant way in which to to get that point across I mean you, you, as you were talking about the picture of the disciples and this this, this ragtag group most of whom most most decent fathers uh, that care about their daughters would, would would hardly allow your daughter to date <laughs> any of these guys. Let alone look at this group and say, as very God himself, I have selected you to take my message of reconciliation and restitution and forgiveness to an entire world. It just defies logic at every level, and I guess it's because at the end it it, it most necess- necessarily takes every aspect of man out of this equation. I mean, the whole key of grace is this, the unmerited favor that God has shown toward us that no man should be able to boast in any of this process. And it really, it really I guess, at the end of the day, defies our understanding, doesn't it?
2: It, it sure does, and what it shows us is that God saw in these disciples, you know, Jesus saw in, in these followers of his what they didn't see in themselves. He didn't see them where they were, he, he saw where they could be and he he both preserved their personalities but he also redeemed their personalities and you see how he used the characteristics of the, these people in the, in the story of Christianity you know, when you read it through the Bible. Now, one of the things I really believe the church needs to do is resurrect the, the human side of Jesus. You know, we, the, the church believes and has believed for, for centuries that Jesus was fully God, he was fully divine, and he was fully human. And it's through the human side of Jesus interacting with these people that we understand how grace plays itself out in everyday life. And what we discover very quickly is that the least likely people are the people that God uses in the most profound way. And his story of bringing redemption to the earth. I mean, probably the person listening, even to our conversation now, that feels like they're the person least likely to be used by God to do something, is maybe the most likely person, because because our God is a God who takes joy in giving grace to people and using them in ways they can't believe. So the doubting apostles, you know, Peter, who denies Jesus three times, ends up becoming the apostle that Jesus allows to preach the Pentecost sermon when thousands of people put their faith in
1: him. So not, a, not only using not, where we are. not not only using the the least likely individuals, but, but just as importantly, and, and I'll have you go into detail on this, Johnny, after the break, to to help illustrate God's willingness to, to literally come down and get his hands dirty, and that is to reach out and touch into the lives of those that even other men would not do. There's a wonderful, I, I mentioned earlier about India, there's a wonderful illustration that you share at the the start of the book, Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, out of India, which parallels the story we see in Mark chapter 1, and we'll get to that aspect of our conversation. With us today, pastor, advisor, professor of religion, vice president of Liberty University. He is Johnny Moore. We're talking about Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, newly published by Thomas Nelson, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through, of course, uh, uh, Amazon.com. You can also get more information on Johnny's website at Johnny, J O N N I E, Johnny Moore, with an E at the end there as well, dot O R G. Back to more of our conversation in a moment. Get you an update on traffic, Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: And back to our conversation. Johnny Moore is with us tonight. He is author of Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches. Also serves as Vice President of Liberty University. You start the book out, and I and I think it sets up a wonderful illustration um, of the whole scene going on in Mark 1 and 41. And and I think it wonderfully helps us better understand, And and maybe you can kind of bring this into the modern day if you would, Johnny just how significant it was as Jesus interacted with the leper.
2: You know, we, we don't really understand this in our, our modern time, because we, and particularly in the United States, I mean, we don't have these kinds of fear-inducing uh, uh, diseases to the degree that it was in the, in the first century. But um, in the first century, I mean, when, when someone had leprosy, when they arrived inside of a town, if they even came into a town, they had to carry a bell with them, and they had to ring the bell. They had to announce themselves as a leper. I mean, if you saw a leper at the end of the road, you would go grabbing your kids and run to the other direction. And so can you imagine when Jesus, in this like show-stopping moment, decides that the lepers are the people he cares about. The lepers are the people that he wants to go extend his grace and his mercy. to? I mean, Jesus goes and hangs out with lepers. In fact, there's this wonderful story that everybody's all heard about, where the, uh, where Mary is washing Jesus' feet with her hair. But what people don't realize very often is that story took place in the home of a guy named Simon the Leper. And I think this is a wonderful demonstration of the, of the attitude that Jesus had when he came down to planet Earth. I mean, he was after those that society had rejected. He was after those that were on the, on the fringes of society. And it wasn't to the exclusion of others. I mean, he, he came for everyone. But the show moments in the Gospel, if you read them within their cultural context, is when Jesus goes to the people that no one wanted to talk to and no one cared about. Jesus knew what it was like to be rejected. He was rejected because of this message. But he reached to the rejected ones, with grace and mercy, and the Gospel. And can you imagine that hopeless leper when finally they were healed for the power of of God. I mean, this was an amazing, amazing moment. It's no wonder Jesus became quickly famous. I mean, he was the God that went and spent time with those that no one cared to spend time with.
1: It was it's interesting. We we see many images in world religions of men who would be as gods. I don't know what that this is the singular case of a god that would be as a man.
2: I guess it is. I mean, this, this Jesus story is unique in all, all of religious history. I mean, I, I talk a lot in the book about uh, my my work around the world. I have a in religion, I teach religion, I, I travel quite a bit, and I, I've been to the largest mosque in South Asia, and I've sat in the Dalai Lama's temple in this village he lives in in Northwest India. I've, I've been to the holiest Hindu and Buddhist places in and, and, and South Southeast Asia. I've studied all of these religions, and the one story of everyone that's following a different path is they're trying to get God to pay attention to them. They're ringing their bells as they go into the Hindu temples, the Sikhs have their 5Ks, and the Muslims have their 5 pillars, and the Buddhists are meditating, and everyone is trying so hard to get God to pay attention to them. But when God named Jesus came down the planet Earth, he announced one of his names as Emmanuel. It was God with us, and where every other religious idea in history seems to be a long road that leads to a door of good works and trying harder to get God to pay attention to them, the story of Jesus is a door that leads to a long road. The way to Jesus is an easy path, because Jesus isn't the God that dropped the ladder from heaven for us to climb up. Jesus is the God that dropped the ladder from heaven for him to climb down to grab us and take us back with.
1: And as you point out, in so many cases of world religions, it's about either not calling attention to yourself, certainly uh, big within Hinduism i mean in in some cases in some Hindu sects, uh, to even compliment um, how beautiful the child might be is looked on with, with, with great fear and embarrassment, at least that you draw the ire of a jealous god, and so the notion of trying to appease or avoid God. Uh, and his wrath in so many ways is, is inherent to all, virtually every major world religion. And yet, here is one where it's not a matter of what we need to do for God, but rather what God has done for us. That, as Scripture reminds us, while we were yet sinners, Christ came to die for us. That through that substitutionary work on the cross, we might be able to find forgiveness and reconciliation and then restoration of a relationship with the very creator of the universe. It's a fascinating read, and I think one that brings great perspective on this topic, even though perhaps the title you might go, wait a minute, Uh, it is true in many hands. Uh, It's amazing to see that God came down get his hands dirty. The book called Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, again newly published by Thomas Nelson, available through Amazon.com, bookstores around the Bay Area, and of course through Johnny's website at johnnymoore.org. That's J-O-N-N-I-E-M-O-O-R-E.org. Johnny, it's been a delight and an education to have you with us today. We'll hope to visit with you again soon. Thanks. My, my pleasure. God bless you. God bless you, brother. There's Johnny again, vice president of Liberty University, Dirty God, Jesus in the trenches. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now
0: back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: It is the largest and fastest growing segment of the United States population typically called the baby boomer generation. Those of us born between 1946 and 1964, comprising some 80 million Americans, and our numbers are being added to by 10,000 every day. I mentioned that 10,000 Americans hit retirement age every single day. As we experience the grain of America, the big question is, how do we go about capturing this amazing block of individuals, not only in terms of harnessing their their collective talents and skills and ability and brain power and and ministry abilities, but then too, how can we most adequately minister to the needs of this growing sector of the population that you know as for all of us that are heading toward uh, the twilight years, you begin to think about the life that you 've led, think about um the shortness of the time that you have left, and questions with regard to the the significance of your life and ultimately being heaven-bound. Insights on the issue of renewing ministry for and by seniors. We're joined tonight by Dr. Michael Parker. He is co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church. and uh, We appreciate so much uh, your time tonight, Dr. Parker, and being with us uh, to talk a bit about this important topic. Well, thank you. Your background includes that of adjunct associate professor, um, the division of geriatric medicine and uh, care. <clears throat> pardon me, at the Center for Aging at the University of Alabama in Burning, uh, Birmingham. We have you
3: mean you we, uh, we have two centers for aging here in Alabama. One affiliated with our medical school, and then we have a center for mental health and aging at the, at the University of Alabama. So UAB is actually a separate university with a you know very. Uh, and with an outstanding uh, department of uh, Division of Geriatric Medicine. So I have a joint appointment.
1: This background, of course, uniquely qualifies you to speak to this topic of just how well churches are equipped in ministering to uh, not just the needs of the aging population, but then, as the book also suggests, how to harness this amazing subset of our culture.
3: I, I think that's part of the problem, if you want to call it a problem. I think it's a, a wonderful gift from our Heavenly Father that he's given prolonged life, and yet it seems like we, we haven't cap, you know, captured that yet. And so what we want to do is, is think about ministry from seniors first, and then during that final season of life, ministry to them. If you think about one demographic, it um, if you make it to 65 on average, and these are just General averages, but if you make it to 65 and you're a woman, you might live another. Typically, you'll live another 19 years, and four to five of those years might be years of dependency where you need some help. Uh, If you're a man, you on average you live uh, not quite as long, another 15 years, and three of those years might be years of dependency. Um, You know, Billy Graham has just written a book called uh, Nearing Home. And in the opening introduction, he he writes, all my life I was taught how to die as a Christian, but no one ever taught me how I ought to live in the years before I die. I wish they had because I'm an old man now and believe it. it believe me, it's not easy. And I think that part of the problem is that uh, we need to capture that vision that we need our seniors. We want to issue a call out there and say we need you. And uh, and then there are very specific things over the Twelve to fifteen years that we've been doing research with congregations that can form the basis of a ministry. Um, but the, the basic idea is to have ministry from seniors. Um, it's interesting uh, how I became involved in, in geriatrics and gerontology. I actually was was on active duty and. Uh, I was uh, assigned to 7th Medical Command. I had great responsibilities. It was right in the middle of, uh, right in the beginning stages of Desert Storm. And my father passed away. And so I came back to the funeral. And when I flew back to 7th Medical Command, they had a memorial service for my father. And I realized that a lot of my brothers and sisters in uniform uh, had similar issues, you know, aging parent issues from a distance. And so I. Um, uncovered this wonderful National Institute of Aging Postdoctoral Fellowship at Michigan. I applied and got accepted, uh, and then I had to apply, and then the Lord had to do some great things, and I had to apply for a long-term civilian training from the Army Medical Department, and I got that. And then as things wind down in the military, you have to kind of iron out your assignments a year out, and uh, my colleagues in psychiatry said, "Parker, you're going to do a child and family fellowship at Walter Reed." And I said, "Well, I'm not. I'm not going." <laughs> and uh, I want to go to Michigan. And and uh, and they, you know, basically said, "We're a young army, and and you're going to have to do the fellowship at Walter Reed, or you put your career in jeopardy." So somebody said I should go talk to my boss. And uh, this was a two-star general who had the weight of the world on him. And uh, we were responsible for medical care for Desert Storm. And uh, when I went in to see him, he mirrored the ideas of the, you know, psychiatrist, my colleagues. And then he said, what are you going to do there? And I said, I'm going to, you know, thank you for coming to my father's memorial service. And I told him what I just shared with your listeners, uh, that, you know, I was interested in studying caregiving and particularly distant caregiving, and his whole countenance changed. And he said, I just got a call from Iowa from my family priest. And he said, your mother is leaving the gas on the stove. What do you want to do? And you see, here you have uh, captured in his story what's going on almost across the country nationwide, particularly for those who care for aging parents from a distance. And he said, you know, he wanted to honor his country with his service and that he'd been training all of his life for, and yet he wanted to honor his mother. Um, and uh, it, it's a it's a challenging a significant life event that most people at midlife face, and it's something we need to prepare for. And so we talk a little about that in the book. And um, so that's how I got involved. Uh, he said, tell those gentlemen that you are going to Michigan. And the next day, you know, they congratulated me for sticking to my guns. And, and off I went for a wonderful postdoc in Michigan, which changed my life, you know, and my professional trajectory. So that's a quick intro into how I got into this.
1: You know, the amazing thing is that we see so much focus these days on uh, health care issues for seniors and uh, approaching that aspect of the physical needs of uh, the, the grain segment of American population, and yet there's so little spoken of when it comes to meeting to meeting the spiritual needs and we're going to spend some time focusing on that when we come back after a brief timeout dr michael parker is with us tonight as you hear a retired lieutenant colonel from the united states army serving now as associate professor at the school of social work and mental health and aging the university of alabama co-author of a new book entitled a vision for the aging church renewing ministry for and by seniors when we come back how to uniquely meet the spiritual needs of seniors. Get you an update on traffic. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Talking about the grain of America tonight, 80 million of us in that generation called the baby boomers, those born between 1946 and 1964, and as some 10,000 of us every single day Reaches retirement age, it begs the question, how do we go about focusing on ministering to this unique and growing segment of the population, not only in terms of of harnessing the talent, skills, and abilities that they have uh, as active contributors to the church and ministry in the body of Christ, but then, too— What about ministering to their needs? There's lots of focus these days, of course, about health care and uh, care services for the elderly and the aging. As much as we talk about the physical needs, though, what about this aspect of meeting their unique spiritual needs? We're talking about that in this segment of the program with us Dr. Michael Parker, co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church, Renewing Ministry for and by Seniors. Let's talk about this. You know, every church... Uh, pretty much uh, anywhere in America has a youth ministry or a young singles group. Are we going to see the day, Doctor Parker, when many churches will also have an older adults ministry?
3: Yes, in fact, uh, a lot of people kind of age out of youth ministry into senior ministry. Uh, from our experience, uh, but the the problem is that we're not addressing it systemically in our in our seminaries, and we're not preparing people for that for the fact that people are living so long, and so. That's kind of an area we've been working on, and if if you look at something even um, as challenging as a disaster, like Katrina, or the recent F5 tornadoes that we had come through Tuscaloosa, seniors um, uh, are hit more severely because of that. Uh, Roughly 70% of the casualties from Katrina, 60 to 70%, were seniors. And 80% of those dear people belong to congregations. And so, one of the responsibilities the church has, I believe, deacons and elders, is to make sure that we have kind of a a safety net to help older people prepare for the kind of disasters that might be characteristic of the geography where you are. Um, I lived in Monterey for a while, and I know some of the dangers you face out there. And really, I think you know, our deacons really need to take responsibility for making sure that our seniors are safe, you know, in the event of a disaster. Uh, Here in Tuscaloosa, where the F5 tornadoes hit, in one uh, church alone, we had four deaths um, related to the tornadoes, and they weren't directly related. They were indirectly related in the sense that they were affected by the consequences and the dislocation of the tornado, and they didn't adjust well. So that's just one small area that I think churches can step up, um, helping, you you were talking about some of the statistics, you know, some would argue that one in two over 80 will suffer from dementia, and roughly two-thirds of those will be Alzheimer's disease, and we're diagnosing that um, awful disease earlier and earlier now. What does someone do with that knowledge that, you know, they're basically going to lose their memory, and for a Christian, it's, the loss of memory of God, their memories of God, their memories of Scripture. What assurances can we give them? And so the co-author on our book, uh, Jim Houston, who, by the way, was mentored by C.S. Lewis at Oxford, wonderful scholar, uh, the most joyful Christian at 88 that I know, and brilliant, has you know, helped me write a chapter on kind of a, a theology of dementia, And he would say that we need to reassure anyone who's been diagnosed, and I'm cutting to the basic idea, is that they're remembered of God, and they can trust Him. And that's just one nuance, again, of how we might develop some ministry.
1: Do We also need to see, you made reference to the issue of seminaries and schools that are preparing pastors and those for full-time ministry. Do we need to see the beginnings of development, Dr. Parker, of unique ministries? Because I think of the needs, as you say, of whether you're ministering to people who are Alzheimer's patients or their loved ones, uh, those that are just, even as the longevity tables do what they do, and we're seeing people living longer and longer. I mean, the growing number of centarians for example, right. in America is, is significant. The needs that they have is not just like treating the older end of the demographic within our congregation. Well, pastor's in his 60s. Surely he can help meet the needs and, and pray for and care for somebody who's in their 70s or 80s. That may not be necessarily the case, especially as we see folks that are 90 and centarians
3: Absolutely. And of course, these people are not able to travel. Um, they have mobility issues often and some frailness. And the church can be a part of helping people age successfully, by the way, to look at it Um, from a positive point of view, we can help people avoid disease and disability. We can help them kind of maximize their cognitive and physical fitness. We can help them be more actively engaged in ministry and in life. I think all our congregations can do a better job of asking our senior saints to pray for ministry and to engage in Holy Spirit-led ministry in the latter stages of life. Uh, You look at examples like Dr. Houston and Dr. Graham, who were um, who their notion of retirement is not age graded you know we we live in a very age graded uh, society and our seminaries are not immune from that nor are our churches we think we we go to school we go to work and then we retire but the truth is we if we're lifelong learners we go to school our entire lives uh, we really work our entire lives and and you know so the these are Structures that are really lifelong. So we we go to school, we work, and we um, um, need to take respites along the way. So those concepts really don't work. And the church needs to challenge, you know, to provide kind of a countercultural perspective on the value of life in the final stages and be involved in helping develop uh, caregiver support programs, uh, helping churches partner that are too small to manage these programs help us, uh, you know, do some late-life planning, end-of-life aging in place initiatives, uh, helping people prepare for um, uh, caregiving. And now we're talking about, you know, middle-stage adults who are worried about their aging parents and then challenging the, the elderly to engage with their young adult children about their, li- their long-term care plans. The long-term care industry in this country is broken and it's in trouble and, you know, when you look at the statistics that suggest we have more people over the age of 65 than we have 18 and younger, those uh, demographics are not going to change. And so it's kind of the elephant on the table. And we we have to help the church embrace it. And the good news that these senior saints are around, these elders are lo- around longer and can help us. So, you know, involving them and... Uh, Small group life so that they're nurturing and loving younger people, um, uh, witnessing to the power of Christ in their lives, uh, and maybe setting up kind of a life review ministry so that you're capturing these stories of these wonderful senior saints and putting it to film. There's a lot of work being done in that area. And we know from uh, our research that when someone completes a life review in the right way, it's an antidepressant. And so when somebody listens to your story and your story of faith, it really is uh, encouraging to that person and affirming, and uh, there are all kinds of lessons there that can be learned and applied by younger generations.
1: Developing a Vision for the Aging Church, Renewing Ministry for and by Seniors, new book co-authored by our guest on this segment of Lifeline, Dr. Michael Parker. The new book, by the way, published by University Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. And Dr. Parker, thanks so much for the time and the insights. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael